A tragedy in Gaza appears to have derailed ceasefire plans. I was on the telephone with the people in the region. I'm still probably not by Monday, but I'm hopeful. Plus, is a former president immune from prosecution for crimes committed in office? The Supreme Court will decide. The Supreme Court will review a lower court's rejection of Trump's claim of immunity from prosecution and scheduled the case for the week of April 22nd. And later, a staple food is in short supply in Indonesia, and plans are underway for a new road traversing West Africa. Today is Leap Year, Thursday, February 29th. And this is VOA's Flashpoint Global Crises. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Over 100 people were killed and 280 were wounded in Gaza on Thursday. Witnesses say Israeli troops fired on a crowd of Palestinians waiting for aid in Gaza City as people were pulling flour and canned goods off of trucks. However, an Israeli government spokesperson described the incident as a tragedy and said initial indications were that deaths were caused by delivery drivers plowing into a surging crowd. Avi Hyman is an Israeli government spokesperson. And at some point, and we can, you've, you can surely see this in some of the videos that the IDF have distributed. At some point, the trucks were overwhelmed and the people driving the trucks, which were Gazan, uh, Gazan civilian drivers, uh, plowed into um, the crowds of people. Uh, ultimately killing, my understanding is, tens of people. I don't have anything more specific to that. It is unfolding. The Israeli army released video footage of crowds surrounding aid trucks in northern Gaza and said in a statement on Thursday the Palestinian crowd attacked the trucks and as a result, dozens were killed from overcrowding, crowding, and trampling. This contradicts statements by multiple witnesses and Palestinian authorities who say that Israeli soldiers fired upon the crowd of people awaiting humanitarian aid. What happened was that yesterday we received information that aid would be dropped in the Nabulsi roundabout area, so we headed there. All the people from the northern Gaza Strip were with us, heading to the same place. Then at 5 minutes to 4, we were surprised by Israeli tanks that came out and opened fire on people randomly and directly. Immediately afterwards, all we found were martyrs, the injured and the wounded scattered on the ground. Hamas warned that the incident could lead to the failure of talks aimed at a deal on a truce and hostage release. U.S. President Joe Biden says a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is now unlikely to happen by Monday, the timeline he had predicted earlier in the week. I was on the telephone with the people in the region. I'm still probably not by Monday, but I'm hopeful. All this as the death toll in Gaza following Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel has reached 30,000, according to Gazan officials. Now to American politics. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to decide Donald Trump's claim that he is immune from criminal prosecution for his actions on January 6, 2021, when hundreds of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building in an effort to block the certification of Joe Biden's election. 
For now, though, this does give Trump one thing he wants, and that's more time. Reuters' Ryan Chang has more. The Supreme Court agreed to hear former President Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity from prosecution for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss. That decision Wednesday will further delay Trump's criminal prosecutions, potentially giving him a boost as he runs to regain the presidency and thrusting the nation's top judicial body with a 6-3 conservative majority and three Trump-appointed justices into the election fray. The justices will freeze the election subversion case being pursued by special counsel Jack Smith. That trial won't start on March 4th, and there's no new trial date. Trump claims he is immune to prosecution because he was president when he took actions aimed at reversing President Joe Biden's election victory over him. The Supreme Court will review a lower court's rejection of Trump's claim of immunity from prosecution and scheduled the case for the week of April 22nd, where they'll focus on one question. Whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? Rebecca Gill, an associate professor of political science at the University of Nevada, says it isn't clear how the justices may rule. I think there are very few legal scholars who think that a majority of the court would agree that any president would have this sort of broad immunity over any conduct in office, much less the particular conduct that's alleged here. Um, so that doesn't mean, though, that um, it's a happy day in Jack Smith's office. It's probably not, um, because this is necessarily going to continue to delay things to some degree. Trump on social media hailed the Supreme Court's decision to hear his immunity claim. He wrote, Without presidential immunity, a president will not be able to properly function or make decisions in the best interest of the United States of America. On February 6th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit ruled against Trump's immunity claim. The three-judge panel wrote it could not accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. Trump supporters attacked the Capitol in January 2021, aiming to prevent Biden from being certified. That's after Trump and his allies made false claims that the 2020 election was stolen and devised a plan to use false electors to thwart Biden's victory. If Trump regains the presidency, he could use his powers to force an end to the prosecution or potentially pardon himself for any federal crimes. Also on Wednesday, an Illinois judge stripped Trump from the state's Republican presidential primary ballot, siding with voters who argued that the former president defied the anti-insurrection clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. She delayed her ruling from taking effect in light of an expected appeal by Trump. The Supreme Court is soon expected to rule on a separate but similar case that also puts it in the election spotlight over the former president's eligibility to be on the ballot in Colorado, having heard arguments earlier in February. That's Ryan Chang of Reuters reporting for us today. From Washington, we go to Kyiv. Tensions increase on the Polish border with Ukraine, and Ukrainian forces face challenges on the front lines. Anna Chernikova is in Kyiv with the details. Tension on the Polish-Ukrainian border is rising as Polish farmers continue their protests of Ukrainian imports, saying it is hurting their business. Donald Tusk, Prime Minister of Poland, said that Poland is negotiating with Ukraine about the complete closure of the border for bilateral trade. 
According to him, it will be a temporary but painful solution for both parties. Tusk says that he is consulting with Kiev so that there is no additional tension. Kiev did not confirm this information. Trade representative of Ukraine, Taras Kachka, noted that during the last round of trade negotiations with Poland, the option of closing the border was not mentioned. He confirmed that the parties were able to find a common language and are working on a constructive solution on how to unblock the border and take into account the interests of both Polish and Ukrainian farmers. Meanwhile, Polish law enforcement officers detained Ukrainian investigative journalist Mikhail Utkach with his cameraman near the Polish-Belarusian border when the journalist was filming material on the transit of goods between Poland, Russia and Belarus. The Ukrainian journalists were kept under arrest for at least four hours and some of the film material was deleted by Polish officers. The international organization Reporters Without Borders condemned the Polish police's interference in the work of the Ukrainian journalists. Meanwhile, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, Alexander Sirsky, after visiting the area of hostilities in the Donetsk region, said that the situation along the entire front line remains very difficult. Sirsky reported that the Ukrainian armed forces knocked out the Russian forces from the outskirts of Orlivka and ordered additional ammunition and necessary reserves to be allocated to the area near Avdivka. According to him, some commanders miscalculated the assessment of the situation, which affected the stability of the defense. He noted that all measures were taken to correct the situation on the spot. British intelligence claims that Russia is now trying to take advantage as Ukrainian forces do not have well-protected positions for defense after the withdrawal from Avdivka. Anna Chernikova, VOA News, Kyiv. Back in Washington, VOA's Katerina Lisanova caught up with Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. 23 uh, leaders of parliament of uh, Europe, uh, they're calling on you to pass aid to Ukraine. Do you have any answer to them? The House is looking at all available options right now, and we'll we'll get uh, we'll address that as soon as the government is funded. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson speaking with VOA's Katerina Lisanova in the halls of the U.S. Capitol building. And on the battlefields of Ukraine, 18 U.S.-produced, self-propelled howitzers are part of the latest security assistance package. They're part of a $1.2 billion defense agreement between Ukraine and Germany. Anna Kostachenko has the story. Fire! This officer from the 24th Separate Mechanized Brigade, who goes by the cold sign Kent, is a professional soldier from the city of Dnipro. He commands a crew that operates Paladin, a 155mm howitzers. For safety reasons, VOA does not use his name. Prepare! Postrel! Fire! The Paladin version of the U.S. Army's self-propelled howitzers was introduced into the U.S. Army in 1992. According to Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, the country received the first artillery pieces in May 2022. The 24th Separate Mechanized Brigade has been using them since the fall of 2023, says Kent. 
If you compare these systems to the Soviet ones, there is a significant difference. For example, the firing range for a Soviet howitzer is about 17 kilometers. For Paladin, it is at least 28. Or, if we use the Excalibur shell, it is up to 40 kilometers. Paladin howitzers are used to eliminate the enemy's heavy equipment that poses the most danger to Ukrainian infantrymen, like tanks. Thirty-five-year-old Lviv resident Bogdan worked in Estonia as a construction worker. He returned from Estonia to defend his native country when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. He says he mastered the digital system of the Paladin Howitzer in just a week, and that the system increases the effectiveness of each shot. The armor here is much stronger than in Soviet howitzer Akatsia, which I worked with at the beginning of the invasion. It is also easier to use because we raise the barrel with a joystick. 36-year-old Ukrainian Roman also returned from abroad. When Russia invaded Ukraine, he was working in Poland, but was back home to fight and defend his country and the future of his two children. I love my country, and I have children, and I don't want to pass this war on to them. They have suffered enough already. Managing a paladin howitzer is a five-person job. After they receive the necessary coordinates, they take a direct shot. Fire! Under terms of the agreement between Germany and Ukraine, 18 more self-propelled howitzers will be delivered in 2026 and 2027. Although no one here hopes the war will still be going on then. Anna Kostuchenko for viewing News Donetsk region, Ukraine. You're listening to Flashpoint Global Crises from the Voice of America. I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Victims of human trafficking from Uganda are trapped in Myanmar. That story coming up soon. Now to Asia, where economic and climate forces are combining to dramatically increase the price of a staple of the Indonesian diet. Reuters' Julian Satterthwaite has more. It used to be a cheap staple ingredient. But rice is getting ever more expensive, and that's a problem for many people in Asia. In this suburb of Indonesia's capital city, shoppers face long lines to secure subsidized supplies. One woman says there will be uproar if prices go any higher. Rice is the center of nearly every meal here. But costs for the grain have jumped close to 16-year highs after India, the world's top supplier, restricted exports last year amid tight supplies. The El Nino weather phenomenon has also reduced rainfall across much of Asia, hitting output of cereals. That has sparked inflation for many foodstuffs, with rice up 16% over the past year. Indonesia's government has stepped in to help shoppers. At this state-subsidized market, rice sells for around a quarter less than normal. An official says that's a response to local demands, with people saying rice is increasingly expensive and hard to find. 
The market limits sales to two sacks per person to stop hoarding. Almost 430 such facilities were set up just in January, with another 300 or so planned by the end of February. Indonesia also looks set to import around record quantities of rice this year. While that may help with supplies, it could also drive prices yet higher. Asia's hard-pressed cooks could find that feeding their families is going to get even more expensive. That's Julian Satterthwaite of Reuters reporting for us today. And now to West Africa, where countries are pushing for the construction of a major highway network connecting five countries, from the Ivory Coast to Nigeria. Sananu Tord reports from Accra, Ghana. Ni Ananofori is a traditional leader and the custodian of land in the Ghana East traditional area, just outside Ghana's capital of Accra. His community has been marked for the construction of portions of the 1,000 28-kilometer-long Abidjan-Lagos corridor. A three-kilometer highway tunnel will run through his community. Having a tunnel in your area, which is one of the first in West Africa, is going to uh, increase the value of the, our area, the lands, and so on. And many people would like to invest in that area. The corridor is a transnational highway project aimed at connecting five West African countries, Ivory Coast through Ghana, Togo, Benin, and Nigeria. The ultimate objective, according to the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, is to provide jobs and create a fast-moving economic corridor between the nations. The project was initiated in 2013 by all five countries and has gone through a series of studies and evaluations to develop a six-lane highway design. It will connect the most economically viable cities, ports and airports in the sub-region. Ifwa Ifwa is with Ghana's Ministry of Roads and Highway. So the whole project objective is looking at how we integrate the economies of the West African community. We are looking at cross-border and improving cross-border trade. And then we're looking at encouraging, sorry, we're looking at improving um, economic and social activities between the communities in the corridor. There are still issues to be worked out, including ways to run one highway across multiple countries with diverse language systems and legal frameworks. The Economic Community of West African States say construction on the project could begin as early as 2025. Chris Apia is the Acting Director of Transport at ECOWAS. The whole of 2024, we will be on the market looking for money. If it so happens that uh, uh, a section attracts financing immediately, nothing stops us from starting. The plan envisions future connections to other countries creating a continent-wide network of nine highways spanning from Cairo to Cape Town and from Dakar to Djibouti. The next step, according to ECOWAS, is to connect Dakar to the Abidjan-Lagos corridor. Sana Nutod, VOA News, Accra, Ghana. And finally today, the Ugandan government says about 30 Ugandans are stuck in Myanmar, being forced to work as online scammers. Officials say they were lured there by traffickers with the promise of a job and are now being held by criminal gangs. Halima Athumani has more from Kampala. 
Francis Mugisha, an information technology expert, is back in Uganda after a nightmare of an experience in Asia. He says it began after he took a job as a data manager and IT specialist in Laos. Not long after his arrival, Mugisha says his bosses told him he owed them 16,000 Chinese yen, the equivalent of $2,225, and the conditions of his job abruptly changed. I never expected someone to come and tell me I've bought you, you're my slave, you have to work for me. Mugisha says they kept his passport and phone and then sold him to another company based in Myanmar, sending him by boat on the Mekong River. But instead of managing data, he was forced to conduct online scamming. This video purports to show young victims like Mugisha being driven to a compound for online scamming with men wearing military uniforms. Mugisha says he was forced to work long hours under harsh conditions. If you don't get a person, that's uh, like, the, the old, it's a day which they will say it's not productive. So you end up you end up being punished, being treated, being beaten, being locked up. Uh, times you you're chained to the chair. Like if say uh, no, I cannot work. I want to go. They chain you to your chair. Mugisha says he managed to finally get out by contacting as many people as he could, reaching out to embassies to get help and support from the International Justice Mission, an international rights NGO and the Ugandan embassy in Myanmar. Kampala officials say about 30 Ugandans are being held under similar conditions at Myanmar compounds in areas held by rebels fighting the country's military junta. Officials say they are run by Chinese organized crime gangs who often smuggle victims through Kenya. The victims fall into the hands of the gangs once they reach Asia. Derek Vasali Rachigeni is Uganda's deputy national coordinator for the prevention of human trafficking. Kigenyi says Ugandan authorities raised the matter with Myanmar's Prime Minister Min Aung Hlaing, who promised that Ugandans who are released will not be held on immigration-related charges. But of course they also acknowledge that uh, the area is rebel-controlled. So anything that involves lawlessness in militia context is quite complex. A spokesman for the Myanmar military did not respond to VOA requests for comment. Mina Chang is the founder of the non-profit group Humanity Research Consultants, which fights human trafficking. She says gangs target people who speak English and other languages that can be used to scam people outside of China. East Africans do speak good English, so that means it's easier um, when it comes to scamming that they, they may be able to, to target other nationalities more than just Chinese. Huh? Also, sometimes the criminals, they do also want to use the victims to, um, let's say, having video calls huh? with their scammed victim. Then you need somebody who can actually speak English, right? Like if you put a Chinese who doesn't speak English, then it would be hard to do that kind of job. Chang says the criminal activity is protected through systemic corruption in Myanmar, both in junta and rebel-controlled areas where powerful individuals and governments shelter the China-based criminal gangs. Halima Athmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. And that's going to end today's show. There's more VOA coverage 24 hours a day on our website, voanews.com, and across our social media platforms. 
On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thanks for listening. Until tomorrow, I'm Steve Karish. Stay up to date with VOA Podcasts. Each weekday, International Edition covers the world's biggest stories, while Flashpoint Iran and Flashpoint Ukraine examine their respective regions in depth every week.